Lord, God of the whole world and God of our calling, we pray that you would give us a clear indication where you want us. And if you don't do that, then Lord, would you please give us patience, insight, sensitivity to your Holy Spirit as we move along each step of the way towards your call and the fulfillment that only obedience to your Holy Spirit can bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so this is like, uh, I can't even remember the name of this talk. It's really long, but it has to do with like where you're going to go in, in geographically in the world, right? And um, so I'm going to talk, uh, I'm going to start with a little, little uh, mention of a guy that uh, wandered around quite a bit. In different, in, in trying to obey God's calling, and yet it took him quite a few places. So, uh, Genesis 12, 1, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'll make, make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram left, as the Lord had told him. So Abram left, and he went to this place, like the land I will show you. And at that time, it seems clear that he didn't really know exactly where was that land, because God was going to show it to him in the future. And so, um, where was he when he started? Haran, right? Which is way up where is, what country of the world is that in now? It's in Turkey. So he's way up in, almost on the border, the northern border of Syria there, just across the border into Turkey. In fact, there's a lot going on there right now. It's a super complicated area of the world. And... um, so Terah, Abram's father, had already taken him from Ur of the Chaldees, and they moved up there to Haran, on this mountainous area uh, near the, is it Tigris, I think, or is it the Euphrates? One of those two rivers. And um, so Abram had this vision, I'm going to show you another land. So he packed up, and he took Lot with him, right? And he took Sarah, his wife, who was also his half-sister, and flocks and some things, and they started off. And they headed which direction? South. They went south, and they went into into another place called Canaan, right? Directly south of them. They just went south, south, south. And there's a highway there. There's a highway there uh, to this day. And back then, there was a highway running from Assyria down all the way to Egypt. So Abraham headed this direction, down into a place called Canaan, right? And we call that place Palestine now, or the land of Israel. And so he got there, and he settled in a place called Hebron. Anybody remember that? He stopped there in Hebron and pitched his tent there. And they stayed there for a little while, but uh, after a little bit, he ran into trouble because there was a famine. And uh, so when there was a big famine... Like, it's, it's a funny thing, you think, when he got to Hebron, or it says the tree, the great trees of Mamre, wherever that's close to Hebron, uh, that maybe God would have said to him, oh, this is exactly the place, right? But there was a famine, and he went down to Egypt, 
because after all, he's just had to find some food and water his flocks and all that sort of thing. He went down to Egypt. When he got down there, he stayed for a bit. And after a while, he ran into trouble again. Remember what kind of trouble Abraham ran into when he got down into Egypt? Something with Pharaoh and something with a lady, right? So he had a problem with his wife, who was taken actually as a wife by Pharaoh for a period of time. And uh, though they had a little conflict, and Abraham, the result was Abraham moved back to Canaan. So when he got back to Canaan, um, he stayed there for a little while. And after a bit, he was moving around, maybe looking for a well, because that seemed to be a big source of uh, conflict and problem for him. Uh, he's always looking for a place to water his flocks. And he wound up in a place called Gerar, which I had to look on the map to see where in the world that was. But it's actually... It's in Gaza, and it's kind of in, that was Philistine territory. Even then, long, long, long before the Israelites ever went to Egypt and came back and fought with the Philistines in the time of David, this is already referred to as a Philistine area. So he ran into another guy, Abimelech, down there. Next thing you know, more trouble with his wife, right? So Abimelech did the same thing as Pharaoh. He sees Sarah. He says, oh, I would like to have that lady for my wife. And they have conflict. And uh, Abraham has to move on. So, oh yeah, I, I forgot this one. On the way from Egypt back to, back to Hebron, he uh, has conflict with his business partner. So they're coming up from Egypt and they're going through a very dry area. And they come up to the kind of the tip of the Dead Sea, and, and they're going up on, through the Negev, and there's watered land up ahead. And um, they decide, Abraham and Lot, there's just not enough room for them both to work together. There's conflict between their two, the servants of both households, and so they split up, and uh, Abraham goes to the high country, Hebron, and Lot stays in the low country, and Abram hardly gets there before Lot gets attacked by Keterleomer and all these guys who came from uh, actually the region of Persia. So they were out there marauding and they come down to uh, the Dead Sea Valley and uh, they attack Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities. So Abraham has to go to war. He saves Lot. And uh, then after that, he goes back up to Hebron. And when he gets back up to Hebron, he's exhausted. He's just had a fight with Keterleomer and their armies. And when he gets there, he has this awesome vision. And uh, he's asleep. And he has a dream. And then God comes to him again and reinforces his promise to him. And after that, even after God's promise, now Abraham's still wandering around. He goes down to Gerar, the Philistine area, where he has conflict with the Abimelech comes back up to Hebron, uh, has this uh, treaty at Beersheba, and through all that time, God is still repeating his promise. Eight times, God repeats that same promise to Abram, and then later, Abraham, uh, through these chapters of Genesis from 12 through 20, or thereabouts. Even though he's wandering and he's wandering. Now, for us, we have a sense of calling. And some of us, we're not quite sure where God's calling us. Like for me, 
Um, before I ever went to medical school, I had this sense, oh, maybe, maybe God's calling me to be a medical missionary, and maybe I'll be able to get into medical school. And that was about as far as it went, because I thought, well, if I'm a doctor, I'll really be able to do something great for the Lord. So uh, I went to medical, I got in, thank the Lord, somehow, uh, and I got in, and I went to medical school, this was my intention, I'm going to be a medical missionary. Then I went to residency, well, what do I do for residency? General surgery, family medicine, something else? Uh, what do missionaries do anyway? Well, they must all be generals of some sort, right? So I did family medicine. And um, then uh, all through my residency, it's like, well, where are you going? Well, I don't know. I guess the Lord's going to show me. In fact, when I started talking to people about it, some, uh, I was talking to a potential employer as I was finishing up residency, and uh, I was telling him about my calling and how, well, I wanted to work for him for a couple of years so I could pay off my debts. And he goes, oh, you're just like Abraham. I go, what do you mean? Well, you know, God said to Abraham, I'm going to call you to the land I will show you. So that kind of stuck in my mind, and... Um, and it gave me the idea that, well, maybe if we don't know exactly where God is calling us, we can still be obedient on a step-by-step basis. As God keeps calling to us, repeating his promise, and we keep moving forward. So, um, then Lori and I got married. Lori's here somewhere. Where are you, Lori? She said she was going to be in the back. Oh, there you go. Right. So we got married, and uh, we started uh, writing to mission agencies. Okay, I'm a doctor. My wife's a nurse. You know, you guys are going to love us, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, and we wrote. And it's, I didn't know who to write to, so I got out uh, JAMA. There was actually an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association which listed all of these organizations that did work overseas. So I picked out randomly, picked out 15 organizations, and I just wrote to them, uh, and all Christian organizations. And I started getting back the what I call an application for an application. Uh, they send you something that says, well, tell us your testimony, who are you, and then maybe we might send you an application to consider whether we might think about making you a missionary. So um, that happened, and we were filling out all these applications for applications. We finally came to a situation where we thought, well, we're pretty good. We think we might go to uh, Nepal. So that's a really needy place, and I felt at the core of my calling uh, the need to um, go to some place where you needed to be a doctor or some kind of specialist in order to get in, some place where the gospel wasn't just available to everybody. And... Um, so we settled on that. Long story short, we, we began to move forward with that particular organization, and everything looked like it was going well. And this is going to sound really wimpy, but it's true. Um, we got invited to a candidate conference, and we said, okay, that's great. We started making plans to go. And right before the conference, I don't know, remember, just a few weeks before the conference, we got this bill from this organization. Oh, for the conference, you know, you need to pay, I don't remember what it was, $1,200 or something like that. It was a lot to me at that time. And I was like, wait a minute, you didn't tell me anything about that. Long story short, we ended up not going 
to that conference because we were just like shocked by this big bill and you know, I don't know. Now it seems a little crazy, but at the time, that's what happened. We didn't go there, and we started writing a few other organizations to try to figure out what was going to happen. And almost immediately, we got a call. So here's Africa Inland Mission. Instead of sending us an application for an application, some person, a human being, called us. And they said, hey, I'm going to be in Kansas City. Can I meet with you? And so... Um, we got together with this guy, and we had a nice little meeting at his mom's house uh, he was visiting. And um, he says, uh, well, you know, you want to go to some place where you have to be a doctor or somebody like that in order to get in. You can't just walk in on a missionary visa. That's right. So he says, well, sounds like the Comoros Islands. What? What is that? He says, um... Have you ever thought about working with Muslims? And I'm like, no. Nope, never thought of it, because I didn't know what God was calling me to at all. It never even entered my mind, Muslims, you know. So he goes, well, you know, they speak French there, so you would have to study French. And then we used this language school in Albertville. Well, I had seen the 1968 Winter Olympics. I was, you know, Albertville, are you serious? Yeah, I think we'll do it. <laughs> Almost like that, seriously. It was just like, was, things started coming together. It was, it was Islamic. It was, you know, there was no access to the gospel there, except in this t- at this time through the uh, medical, few medical missionaries who were there. And uh, I knew you had to study French in the Alps. Wow. <laughs> so, actually, we went ahead with that. And, we had lots of different kinds of training and so on. We prepared and we went to the Comoros Islands. Um, so I tell you this story to give you a feeling like so, some of you, most of you are younger people and you haven't been through this whole process yet or maybe not too many times yet. Uh, so just, it, it, it's tortuous. You know, it doesn't, it's not a straight line. For many people, there's some false starts and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, and being able to tolerate uncertainty is just a, a core gift that you need to be able to embark on this journey in medical missions. So I want to talk about those. I want to actually have content in my lecture. So um, we're going to talk about the geographic regions of the world. And this is really a daunting uh, challenge because... Uh, you try to find a person who knows about how missions work in the different geographic regions of the world. It's just, um, I don't know who those people are, but I've done quite a bit of reading, and I'm trying to put together some sort of idea about the different geographic regions. Now, another thing, right now, we had a long missions career, and that's something we can talk about another time, but uh, right now what I'm doing is teaching in a family medicine residency program in Kansas City. And um, so I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of medical students and residents who are interested in missions. And uh, they have, some of them have experience in different places too. So a lot of my, what I'm saying is sort of secondhand knowledge from people that I know or have talked to. And some of it is actual knowledge from a survey uh, for whatever that's worth. It's worth something. So... Um, 
We're going to talk about the world in these kind of areas. Uh, North America, South, Central America, and the Caribbean. Am I fading? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. All right. Um, Europe, Africa, Asia, Southeast and Asia and Pacific, and China as a separate region. Um, now, North America and Europe are kind of a different animal. And so right at the beginning, most, most of us, Actually, I don't know where you guys are going, but I, I'm not going to talk about North America. But we, most of us know something about North America, and we know about the mission landscape here. Europe is also a different animal. It's actually it's very, very difficult to do medical missions in Europe uh, because of licensing and residency. And the, actually, the, uh, the big migrant crisis of the last few years has changed the landscape considerably in Europe and now in Russia. Um, there's new laws uh, regarding how someone can come in, especially work as an expatriate in these countries. So we're going to leave those out. Um, and we're going to talk about Africa, South America, Africa, Asia, South Asia, uh, China. So a lot of these... Uh, Differences in these regions, uh, they have an interaction with your own personality, your work style, and so on. And, of course, there, it's complex because you, there's you, there's your spouse if you have a spouse, or your children if you have those. There's your sending organization, whoever that happens to be. There's your receiving organization or your workplace in your host country. And there's factors that involve all these entities. There's your spiritual inclination. So what's God calling you to do? Are you there to share the gospel and plant a church? And you're going to just have medicine as your, what they used to call, I don't know if this is politically correct in the mission circles anymore, but it used to be called a platform. Oh, we have a platform. We run a tour agency. Oh, I have a platform. I have a clinic in Algeria. Uh, but really, what I do is uh, go out into the villages and share the gospel with people. So do you want to have a platform? Um, do you want to have some kind of medical work that supports uh, spiritual work? So, well, I have a clinic, um, or I, uh, was, I, I was in Kajabi in Kenya. So I work in the hospital. I take care of the sick people. We have chaplains who go and share with them. So your medical work is supporting a spiritual ministry. Or do you say, my medical work is my ministry. I'm taking care of sick people. What do you want? That's what Jesus did. He healed people, and I'm going to go and I'm going to heal people best I can. That's my ministry. Or, you know, take one more step away. Well, I'm going to teach those guys who are, who are strongly desiring. They're, they need an education. They want to learn how to take care of their countrymen. I'm going to try to help them do it. That's my ministry. What's your, how hard do you want to work? Like when I was getting, thinking about going to medical school or applying to medical school, uh, so I talked to one of my friends there at uh, William & Mary. Uh, hey, Tim. His name is Tim also. I'm thinking about going to medical school. He looked at me and he said, Tim, it's just about this. Do you want to work to live or do you want to live to work? And I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah. That's a hard, you know, I don't want to think about living to work. Up until that time in my life, I didn't think like that. I was like, well, I had a life and work was part of it. 
So do you want to work to live or do you want to live to work? Are you dedicated to the work as your calling? It's like, well, healing people, that's what I do. That's my whole calling. Or is there this work-life balance? I got kids. My kids need to, um, you know, go for a hike or go to the beach or climb a mountain or something. Uh, I and or I write uh, worship songs and I want to help. Thank you. I want to help lead worship. Uh, I want to lead Bible studies or uh, lead people to Christ. Um, or is your work just in order to maintain your presence there? I work, uh, you know, three half days a week, and the rest of the time I meet, I decide, do discipling, I'm writing uh, Bible studies in the language of my host country, I am um, working with the, the, the um, health ministry to improve their care of chronic TB patients or something like that. What about your ministry style? It, there's a huge spectrum, you know. Are you um, a confident, self-reliant pioneer? One of these guys is going to go out, or these ladies is going to go out and start a hospital from scratch in the middle of um, the Congo, right? I know somebody who did that, and they got a bulldozer, and they started by bulldozing a whole bunch of trees. And so I went to a, a meeting in um, uh, Kenya, uh, and uh, here's this guy showing up uh, with both arms in casts at the meeting. Right? Some tree fell over and uh, broke both of his arms. So he's doing great, by the way. That, that was like 15 years ago. Are you a strong individualistic leader? Okay, maybe you're not a pioneer to start a ministry, but you can lead a hospital, uh, no questions asked. Nobody has to... Uh, um, help you, you know what to do, you've got a vision. Can you, do you want to contribute to a great team? You've got medical gifts, you've got skills, you've got some tremendous experience, you've learned a lot, and you are, you're going to bring this to a team that's already functioning. Or do you want to support others in ministry? Well, um, I, I'm a family doctor, I do obstetrics, I'm going to go and I'm going to work uh, one month a year at Kajabi and I'm allow those other doctors who are working their heads off there to go to a conference while I'm there, or to go on vacation with their kids. What kind of infrastructure do you need for your work? Do you need, uh, if you're a family doctor, maybe all you need is a shady tree and a bag of uh, a few instruments. Um, <clears throat> maybe you're a specialist and you need uh, and you want to help in an area where there's a primary care person that's already taking care of the uh, colds and backaches. Or maybe you're a dentist, in which case you need quite a bit more equipment. You can't just um, walk up with a bag and some pills and take care of people. Maybe you're a surgeon. You need a lot of infrastructure. You need an operating room. You need anesthesia. You need all kinds of official permission uh, to operate. Because, believe it or not, in most places anymore, you cannot just walk in and start cutting people up. <laughs> or maybe you're a teacher. You need an educational institution, hospital administrator. You need a hospital, right? So, uh, how much infrastructure do you need? What about your sending agency? Are they uh, somebody 
Like here's this one that for years and years they were they were like saying we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And so the main thing was evangelism, church planning. I don't want to misrepresent them because I don't represent that group. But as a part of that, they basically de-emphasized what was a huge uh, medical ministry, worldwide medical ministry, and that became de-emphasized and they ended up um, divesting themselves of all, almost all, or possibly all of their hospitals. And uh, so, they, because the main thing was evangelism. And it was great if you could be a doctor, as long as you kept in mind that what you were there for was to plant churches. Or I worked for an agency that says, oh, uh, we help the most neglected. That's our calling. Go out to the most neglected. And that was a very, that was a pretty, kind of a vague definition. Um, And it made it a little bit hard to decide where you were headed. What made one group of individuals more neglected than another? Or maybe you've got somebody, an organization says, we only work in the 1040 window. Or we support indigenous Christians in their ministry. That's an organization I talk to. Like, uh, I, I'm like, well, I want to be a missionary. He goes, well, you know, what we do is we support indigenous Christians. So how can you help these guys who are already doing ministry in their area do it better? And then other considerations like, What's your language? Do you want to learn another language? Are you dedicated to that? How about a hard language? I mean, learning French or Spanish is one thing. Learning Arabic or Mandarin is a whole other thing. And then there's those click languages in Southern Africa. I mean, there's some terribly difficult languages. So, and how much do you want to work in English. I, I, people who are, I'm, I'm surprised how many people I talk to who say, well, I want, I'm interested in missions. I'm interested in international medicine. That's another, you know, euphemism. And uh, so what do you want to do? Well, I'm not sure. Da, 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 da. We talk about it. It comes down to, well, they want to go, let's say, one month a year and help out somewhere. Well, that's great. That's good. It's legitimate. Uh, but it probably means that they're not going to learn another language. They're probably going to try to work in English. So that. That makes a difference for where they're headed. Oh yeah, uh, what about your what about your tolerance of the climate? I mean, we worked in uh, Tunisia, down in a place called Sidi Bouzid, a little town in central Tunisia, and it got up to 50 degrees centigrade in the summer. So that's really hot. I mean, it's like 130, and we and of course there, nobody had air. That was uh, central air or central heat was impossible. And uh, it, in the winter, we scraped ice off our windshields, and it was 45 degrees in our bedroom when we woke up in the morning. And in the summer, we got up to 130. So you, you, it was very hard. So, you know, we tolerated that all right. It wasn't, it's not as bad as it sounds, honestly. You, get, you learn to get used to a lot of stuff. But um, are you willing, to, or is your health able to tolerate something like that? How about your tolerance of the local religion? So I met, when we were living in Sidi Bouzid, uh, we went to this uh, wedding, which was next door. And uh, their way of celebrating a wedding was really noisy. I mean, our entire apartment shook until 3 o'clock in the morning from the amplified music from this wedding. They were having a great time. So we went down there. We, you know, politely stepped in from, I don't know, 9 to midnight or something like that. And uh, some guy that I knew, a young guy, says to me, 
we were talking, yes, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to study medicine. Oh, really? That's neat. He goes, yeah, um, I want to study medicine in the United States. Well, why is that? Because, you know, it's so much easier, medicine is so much easier in the United States than it is in Tunisia. Really? <laughs> That's hard to imagine, you know. He goes, yeah. He says, you know Osama bin Laden? I go, this really, right in the middle of the conversation like this, yeah. I said, yes, I know Osama bin Laden. This would have been in the early 90s. He goes, uh, yeah, you know, I really, really, I really love Osama bin Laden. Really? <laughs> yes. And I wish that he would drop a nuclear bomb on Washington, D.C. I'm like... Wait a minute. Didn't you just say you want to go to medical school in the United States? Yes, yes. I would love to go to medical school in the United States. And, so whatever. That's the conversation. You know? <laughs> he really, really, boy, we sincerely wished that Osama bin Laden would drop a nuclear bomb on Washington, D.C. And he wanted to study medicine in the United States. <laughs> so, this is not, you know, many people, and this, this was a Muslim guy, and so and within Islam, people learn to accept uh, mutually incompatible ideas. It's just part of some religions, and Islam is one of them. It, can you deal with that? You know, how frustrated will you get if you're year after year dealing with people uh, who have... Uh, specific arguments within their religion that they've developed over centuries to counteract Christianity or to say, well, you know, Jesus never died or Jesus was never crucified. Okay, Jesus never rose. We can deal with that, right? Everybody in the United States believes that practically. But uh, Jesus uh, wasn't God's son. It's part of their theology. That can be wearing. So, uh, there was a study, the PRISM survey, it was started actually at this meeting, CMDA put it together, and um, it's Patterns and Responses in Intercultural Service in Medicine. A guy named Mark Strand headed it up, and they carried out this survey from 2000, 2010 and 2011. So they surveyed uh, people who were coming to this conference, and then two uh, Christian medical dental um, um, Association conferences, one in Kenya and one in Thailand. They surveyed 393, or they surveyed a lot of people. They had 393 valid responses. 18 countries of origin, 67 host countries or countries of service. And they asked medic, uh, licensed medical missionaries, not including just doctors, but other medical people. And they asked him a bunch of questions about how long they'd been there, what they intended to do, and what were they doing. Was it similar to what they expected? And then um, that survey is published, and you can find it. I'm pretty sure you can find it online. And uh, then just in, no, in 2015, uh, Mark Strand wrote another article for the Christian Journal for Global Health. And... Um, that article, this is the title of that article, it's long, but basically what, what he did was he went through that article, and I, and I helped him. We went through that article, to, went through the PRISM survey together, and we tried to group the responses by region of the world. And so, you know, it's limited. We had uh, 393 responses. That's not that many. 
And what was discovered was that, for example, uh, we look at these different regions. Here's South America, the region that I personally have the least experience or knowledge about. Nursing and family medicine were the people who mainly uh, seemed to be working there. Wasn't a lot of surgery. Most of those people were working in a private hospital or clinic, including possibly a mission hospital. Almost all of them were involved in Christian healthcare work. And they almost all used the local language. So they didn't work in English. There's a generally low level of engagement with local healthcare officials. So if you want to change the way the Ministry of Health does something, maybe South America wouldn't be a place to do that, for example. Because many of these people that have their own little Christian clinic or a little Christian NGO or something. In South America, the medical missionaries responding express the highest levels of anxiety and depression, which seems hard to imagine, but it's true, of any of these areas of the world. Higher, for example, than the Middle East. Um, no change in the difficulty of obtaining t- uh, permission to work there. So that's an issue. Um, it's very hard to predict how likely it will be for you to pr- obtain permission to work somewhere. So I'm not sure how um, important that is to think about for your future. Um, it was, it's been imagined that uh, maybe the levels of anxiety and depression that people felt, and there's a, there's a lecture here on burnout, that's a, probably a worthwhile thing to uh, consider, but that might have to do with the fact that there was relatively little interaction with other agencies and with the government. So people are a bit on their own. A bit of, it's a bit of a silo. You're working in this one area. It's a little hard to tell whether you're having any effect in a, on a larger, in a larger sense. And um, also, you're not being encouraged by a lot of networking uh, with uh, Ministry of Health people or maybe even other missions. The highest number. Uh, of respondents were from Africa, but partly that obviously that's because the survey was offered at a meeting in Africa. There was a lot of family medicine, surgery. Family medicine was, I think, the most popular, then surgery, then nursing. Getting permission to work in Africa is pretty straightforward. Of course, Africa is a big continent, right? It doesn't need to be said, maybe, that there's a huge difference between uh, Libya and uh, Kenya, right? Africa's a big place, uh, and there's a lot of conflict going on. So, um, But in, in general, it's relatively straightforward getting permission to work in Africa. It's clear that there's a need for expatriate workers. So if you w- want to work someplace where you feel like, hey, I can make a difference, they really need me here, well, Africa's great for that. I've worked in... A couple of different places in sub-Saharan Africa. And typically, uh, there's no problem feeling like at the end of the day, well, I've took care of some sick people. Or I've done some, I've shared the the Lord with somebody that uh, maybe didn't have other access to the gospel. Local health officials are favorable, the most favorable of any place in the world. There's a long history of, of the mission hospitals participating in the work of the ministries of health. 
And it was uh, gauged the most positive working environment. So people go there, they work with Christian African colleagues to take care of very, very needy people. So that can that tends to be a satisfying combination. The Middle East. So we worked in Jordan for seven years. Um, it was considered the least improved healthcare system, a little bit static there. Support from local healthcare systems was weak. Um, so typically the Ministry of Health was not strongly encouraging you in your work. They might know or they would know that, hey, this is a Christian work. These people are probably sharing uh, the Christian gospel with Muslims. We don't really like that. It's illegal, at least officially speaking, illegal in most of the uh, Middle East and North Africa. Um, illegal, but it tends to be tolerated. That's a whole nother discussion. Getting permission to work varies a lot. At one time, it seems to be not so hard. Other times, uh, it's probably, it's, it probably becomes impossible. There's some local crisis or something, and all of a sudden, uh, they're not interested in having expatriate workers. And it varies a lot across the Middle East. Like if you go to northern Iraq right now, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, you don't even need a you, you can just travel there on your U.S. passport. You don't even need a visa. You just kind of walk right in. <coughs> But Iraq itself is a whole other story. Obviously, Syria is out of the question. Turkey is a different situation. So every place you go is different. Um, in the Middle East, they, people who were working there felt that there was a need for expatriate workers. A big need on account of the gospel. Also, the state of the healthcare care uh, systems in those countries is really only fair. And it was uh, rated by people who work there as the least positive work environment. So people felt uh, that they were not being encouraged by uh, a lot of networking with other Christian organizations. There aren't many there. Or with the ministries of health or patients. You know, you kind of feel under constant pressure, honestly. Asia, uh, the healthcare systems are really improving dramatically especially in China. Um, by and large, in the survey, they noted little support from, local, uh, from the local healthcare authorities. Um, some people reported increasing difficulty obtaining permission to, to work. And people perceived that there was less need for expatriate workers because it's kind of like, well, the ministries of health pretty much have it covered in a lot of these places. Cambodia, Thailand, Laos. Um, family medicine was a, a common respondent. And a lot of people worked um, at home uh, or in, uh, well, they worked from their home uh, more than in other regions. Some worked in government hospitals. I think some of these ones that work in government hospitals were in China. I want to talk about China a little bit separately. There's less Christian healthcare work, more secular work settings, so you might be working with people who are not supportive of your Christian testimony. There's a mixture of using local language and English. I don't have a good handle on that, but it obviously varies a lot depending on how rural or how urban you are and whether you're in an educational setting or not. Moderate level of anxiety and depression was experienced there. Again, I think 
likely related to the um, isolation. China's kind of a different animal, but it's so big, um, I kind of decided to treat it separately from Asia, although in our survey we did not separate China out. I talked to Nick Kamenelis. I, I don't know if, how many people know Nick. He's doing a talk on refugees here, and um, he goes to China and works in a Christian family medicine residency. He teaches there uh, for a month every year. So I talked to him specifically about China. Basically, he's saying that the health education sector is wide open. Um, it's possible to get a uh, medical license which is specific to your institution. So if you're going to go and teach in a specific hospital, you can get a license and you can practice there legally, actually seeing patients and teaching residents, doing procedures. And it's possible to work within a Christian NGO. So that is local Chinese Christian NGOs. And Nick gave me this uh, contact, the Jinhua Foundation, which he pronounces it differently somehow, but that's the website anyway. You don't have to have an accent to get into the website. And they will link uh, Christian healthcare workers with a site, uh, with a Christian NGO or some place where they might work uh, in medicine. Usually, I think it's all within medical education in China. Southeast Asia and the Pacific, um, people responding uh, seem to feel that the local healthcare systems were getting worse. Um, people who were responding were mostly family medicine and pediatrics. Um, there's a huge variation between individual countries. There was a lot of non-clinical and academic work. So most of the people responding were not uh, actually caring directly for patients. Some were working in uh, uh, an office of their organization. Um, some were teaching. Some worked in secular settings not supportive of Christianity. For what it's worth, they had the lowest level of anxiety and depression. I don't have an interpretation of that. Could it be culture? Because that whole society is not, it's like kind of like whatever, in case it's not going to hurt. Yes, possibly. I, I don't know what to say about that because I really have little experience in that part of the world myself. I've visited a couple of times in Thailand. That's it. Common factors for success. Well, wherever you go, for sure you need some basic uh, gifts. Perseverance. A robust sense of calling. I, I had a dream before I ever thought about, no, it's, that's not true. About the time I was thinking of possibly applying to medical school, I um, dreamt one night that I was climbing up a ladder. And I climbed and I climbed and I climbed. And it was just like I climbed up so high I climbed up into outer space so the earth was far below me. And... Um, I was standing up there and I thought, you know, why, am I keep, why do I keep going up? And I'm looking up at the stars and all of a sudden the ladder just collapses. And I had a jolt of fear in my dream and then I realized I wasn't falling. And I looked down and I realized I was standing on God's hand. And that 
that, you know, that was a real dream which I associate so strongly with my calling. That whatever it was I was doing, like giving this talk, for example, you know, it's a, it may be a stretch, but no matter how much of a stretch it is, somehow I'm there because I'm standing on God's hand. That robust sense of calling is absolutely necessary to get through the rigors of preparation, adaptation to your new situation, and just working, you know, working all night or working with people who are difficult, solving hard problems. You need a sense of being needed, that the, uh, the location or the team or the people that you're ministering to need you. Um, ability to work with a team is absolutely essential unless you're going to really work by yourself, in which case your success might be limited. Self-care skills, um, you know, a, your ability to get um, what, what used to be called member care, I don't know if they still call it that, but, uh, you know, organizations caring for their personnel on the field, that's, that's spotty. I mean, let's just admit it. Some people, some organizations do a great job in some locations. Yeah, there are locations where you just simply can't get uh, care from outside so self-care skills and the ability to recognize when you're not doing well um, and do something about it is super important. Realistic expectations. Uh, well, I put this up there. That was easy to type it, but it's really hard to know what, it, what does it mean to have realistic expectations. I don't mean just dumb your expectations down, but expectations that gradually become realistic as you understand what's going on and you get a feeling for, you know, what's God calling you to? What can really happen? So, um, after all of Abraham's wanderings, uh, in the end he settled around Hebron for a long time. And uh, in essence, uh, he had what amounted to a big corporation. He had a whole bunch of servants, all kinds of flocks. He had... Uh, Wives and concubines, it says, after Sarah died, he married Keturah, and then he, at the time of his death, he gave gifts to the sons of all of his concubines, it says. So he had a, a bunch of people around him, um, and yet, as far as God's promise, what? What did he actually have? Well, he bought a cave in the field of, uh, the cave of Machpelah, whatever wherever that is in Hebron or near Hebron, where he buried Sarah, and he himself was buried there later. So he owned that you know, postage stamp-sized piece of land within the Promised Land. And he had one son, the son of the Promise, Isaac. Oh, he had one other thing. In Genesis 15.1, that's what God said to Abram. Don't be afraid, Abram. This was after he fought Ketelaomer and all those guys from Persia. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So he had a few, he had two little bits. You know, God said, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. He had just Isaac. I'm going to give you all this land. He has one little postage-sized piece. Unless you count the well at Beersheba. Okay, maybe you can say that was his. 
Later on, it seems like maybe it belonged to Abimelech until Isaac got it back. So he has this one little postage-sized piece of land, but God himself is his very great reward. So whatever we encounter in our wanderings, whoever comes to the Lord, or whether we plant a church or not, or change the way some illness is cared for, or educate some people to do a whole lot better job of loving and caring for their countrymen, in the end, we, we must be satisfied with the knowledge that God is our very great reward. I'm going to pray and then we have a couple of minutes for questions if anybody wants to talk or have any discussion. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, that you are our very great reward and we are satisfied in you. Lord, give us obedient hearts to be sensitive to every change, to be able to tolerate uncertainty, and to listen carefully to your Holy Spirit and do our very best with every opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, does anybody want to have input? You know, you have some experience in a particular part of the world and you'd like to share it. Say something about it. Yes, ma'am. Okay, question about the Caribbean islands. So, I've been to Haiti. I've worked there for a brief period of time in a missionary hospital. I've visited the Dominican Republic. Um, okay, I've visited a, a, one other place, St. Martin. My son's in medical school there. That's about my only experience in the Caribbean. Haiti, of course, is a tremendous... It's been a, a missions consumer for over 100 years. Um, Right now, there's a group that's trying to get me to go to Haiti. They want to start a brand new ministry there. There's so much going on. There's a cholera outbreak going on there right now, you know. So right, so Haiti's an easy place to work. It's close to the United States. It's cheap to fly there. If you speak French, which is a relatively easy language to learn, um, you can really go far in Haiti. If you just speak English, you can still do fine. There's lots of NGOs there. They're so used to having Americans ever since the earthquake. Um, a lot of the other Caribbean nations, like Jamaica, you mentioned, my son-in-law has gone there on a couple, two or three mission trips. A lot of these places are recipients of short-term mission trips. They have uh, indigenous Christian churches. So um, if you want to plant a church, uh, yeah, this is my own personal feeling now, which is that, well, there are indigenous churches there. I would really... It, personally encourage you to work with an indigenous church, maybe help them if you can. And if it's a short-term commitment, I'm personally skeptical. Of course, I'm a long-term missionary, but I'm personally skeptical about you going as an individual and having much of an impact uh, if you're going a a short-term. NGOs, and and the question, what can be done with short-term missions, is the subject of uh, another talk, obviously. Um, so that's about what I can say within the Caribbean there's a lot of lostness there's a huge amount of need the the whole cruise industry has um, had a profound effect on Caribbean islands I experienced that in St. Martin's St. Martin um, which they brought you know liquor gambling prostitution and uh, corrupted those uh, 
cultures somewhat. I'm sure they were corrupt already, but uh, so that that's a whole a difficult area, and I think it does require long-term application and a recognition that there are there are local Christians there who also see these uh, these needs. So, and that's about as much as I can say about that. I I don't know much more. Does anyone else have a comment about a specific area? So, John, you, you've got so much experience in different parts of the world. What can you uh, add? Well, one thing I would add would be... Uh, one thing I would add would be that um, one of the great mentors of myself, uh, Bob Schindler, who was in Monrovia, Liberia, as was this doctor right here, uh, Dr. David Van Rieken, I have great, great amounts of experience. And I asked Bob Schindler, who's, by the way, now gone on to be with the Lord, but I asked him once, what is the main characteristics we have to develop to be missionaries and he said there's four absolute characteristics you have to do to be a missionary first of those is flexibility he said the second of those is flexibility (laughs) he said the third of those is flexibility and I said and the fourth is flexibility he said no the fourth is a sense of humor when flexibility fails (laughs) so I think that's really some some uh, some of that is you you remember probably hear Bob say that before but uh, we, we've had experience a lot over there. I think there's a lot of great information here in terms of what you can, what you can do. It's, yeah. it's very different. We do medical education, both uh, conferences, and we've started residency programs in multiple of these areas. And uh, every place is different. And you really have to go and learn to adapt and be what you need to be right there at that particular thing. We have residency programs where all of our residents overseas are Christian. We have residency programs overseas where you would not dare mention from the podium that you were a Christian. It would really jeopardize your life. So you have to be flexible and adapt to those things. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, John. Okay, our time is up. So I'll, I'll be here for a few minutes. I don't have another talk uh, any time today. I'll be here. My wife, Lori's raised a, a three kids overseas. We now have one grandbaby. Uh, All three of our kids are involved in medicine, so that says something uh, probably successful about the whole undertaking. And uh, we'll be glad to talk to people uh, through the day.